You'll know when you have a wild woman. She'll practice her craft without boundaries. She is truly autonomous. Her loyalty is only to the family she serves, a midwife who will not allow herself to be held back by a system she didn't create. This podcast is for the birth keepers who want to grow and change. We're open to learning through self-reflection and supportive community. We are creating this space to explore without judgment. We are remembering we were born wild. Hello, welcome back to the Born Wild podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sophia. Uh, Leah is out of town at a festival, so it's just me today. Um, And with me, I have Gemma Epp, and I will just hand it over to you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Um, I found you on Instagram and uh, saw one of your posts and was like, we have to have her on the show. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Sophia. Yeah, my name is Gemma Epp. I'm a traditional birth worker, traditional midwife up here in British Columbia, Canada. I live pretty rurally here. I'm also a wife and a mother. I have an almost six-year-old. And now at the time of recording, I'm about 25 weeks pregnant. Oh, congrats. Yeah, super exciting times. And yeah, I'm excited to come on and talk about birth, my favorite topic. (laughs) Mine too. (laughs) Sometimes every once in a while I have a client who's like, oh, I didn't call you because I didn't want to bother you with that question. I'm like, I love you. I would rather do. Yeah. I'm like, if it's a math question, don't call. I hate math. But if it's a birth question, I'm all ears. Yeah. Yeah. Parenting, birthing, homeschooling, all the things. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's start at what the beginning is for you, whatever that is, whether it's the beginning of your career, the beginning of your mothering, where does your start into being obsessed with birth begin? Yeah, such a good question. And it starts pretty early with me. I feel like I was always called to this path and to birth in general. I was always um, really, really intrigued by it as a child. Um, Like I I always had visions of my births and I knew I would be a mother and I had so many questions about births. And then it was, I think I was 15 when I was gifted the book Spiritual Midwifery by Ina May. Um, and that was the point where I first like fell in love with it and knew that I would absolutely be a midwife or a doula in some capacity. Um, so that, that is when it started. And then I ended up having my daughter really early. I got pregnant with her when I was 18 and had her at 19. But at that point it had already been many years of, I mean, I'd come home from school and be watching home birth videos online. That was my, that was my hobby. And I had read all of the, um, so home birth was in your realm because of the book. You hadn't heard about it before. I can't remember where I first heard of it because like my mom didn't home birth. I mean, she was always very out of the system and like raised us very naturally and whatnot. So it wasn't a stretch. She didn't home birth, but that was never a stretch. We were always like, I grew up in um, like spiritual women's circles and whatnot. So that was my realm. I can't remember where I first heard about it, but it was, I don't think it was ever a wow moment. It always felt quite natural. 
And then by the time I got pregnant at 18, it would, yeah, it was no question about it. Of course I was going to birth at home. Yeah. So I was actually living in Indonesia at the time. And that is where I met Ibu Robin Lim. She's an incredible midwife who has Bumi Sehat in Indonesia and across the Philippines. And I went to Bumi Sehat for my prenatal care. Um, and that's really where I first started falling in love with placenta medicine specifically. I'm also a placenta, call myself a placenta witch, placenta specialist, placenta encapsulator, Ooh. medicine maker. Um, but that is where I first fell in love with placenta because she wrote the book, um, The Fourth, The Forgotten Chakra, about the placenta and lotus birth and all of the medicine of her. And so she really sparked that love and then just fed the passion of traditional midwifery. And then, yeah, I had the most like brilliant, empowering home birth with my daughter. It was a 24 hour fire walk, but exactly what I needed. Um, and she, yeah, she initiated me so perfectly and beautifully into that space. So as soon as I started moving out of maternity leave with her, I went right into birth work, did my first conventional doula training for a year and I've been doing it ever since how did you switch into like how long did you do doula work are you still doing doula work no um I did for like three years both in and out of the hospital and that was really really challenging for me and my heart and knowing I went into it so naively. My only experience of birth had been uh, a fairly undisturbed. I did have a medical midwife present at my birth, but I was really, really lucky in that she was incredibly hands-off and I was pretty much just on my own, undisturbed for my birth. But that was my only experience of birth and that's what I thought all of my clients would experience as well. And then going into the like conventional doula world, it was heartbreaking, <laughs> especially the times where, yeah, really medicalized home birth with midwives and the times in hospital with OBs and whatnot. I was just shattered because you fall in love with these women and you know what birth is supposed to look like. But in all of my doula training, I, I felt like I was never taught how to like truly give them, like allow them to take their power back. I feel like in so many of the doula trainings, I was just taught how to make giving their power away more like comfortable and easeful for them. There was never any talk about like truly walking with them and holding their hand towards sovereignty and taking birth back. So it felt, I felt really stuck in those years because I love supporting women, but I was also trauma bonding with them and would like leave the hospital after every birth crying because I had done my very, very best. And I had taken upon the role of advocating onto myself. And yet still all this abuse was happening to my clients as much as I tried to prevent it. 
Yeah, your role ends up being like protection from the staff versus actual support when maybe what they really need is a lawyer. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it turns birth into a battleground. And that is, I, I did not know of birth in that light at all, as I shouldn't, right? I knew of it as this amazing, undisturbed, um, empowering space, like all the Ida Mae stories, my own birth and whatnot. That's what I knew of birth. And so for it to be shifted so dramatically into this space of like trying to become this like mama bear and like fiercely protecting this beautiful family unit and their hormonal matrixes, it was really, really, really challenging. So you with it because you think you can make a difference or what would they be like without you, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Because I feel like doulas do make a difference in the system. Um, it's just, there's, there's a better way. And I truly, I didn't know that there was a better option. I'm like, well, it's either this or they do it alone. And that doesn't feel like an option in my system when I'm so called to this work. So yeah, I did feel stuck for quite a few years. And when you were doing that doula work, were you working with placentas? Yeah, pretty much from the start. I started encapsulating placentas. And again, from like more of a conventional route, just like picking up the placenta, encapsulating it, all done. Whereas now over the years, it's really, really shifted into a like more holistic, spiritual, like ceremonial practice. I always talk about how like I, it's a whole process when like a woman trusts me to have her placenta come into my home and for me to make medicine out of it, whether it's encapsulation or smoothies or tinctures or homeopathic remedies, whatever, my house goes through like a very intense cleansing process. It's a huge ceremony. Like in the beginning, I was definitely not like, yes, I love placentas, but I was not treating them with like the reverence and ceremony that they need and deserve. And now I feel like I'm at the point many years later where I am just in awe when somebody entrusts me with their placenta. I just, yeah, I can't believe it. It's such a special sacred space. Can you walk us through your transformation from just encapsulating to what it is now and like what shifted things for you and what you learned about the placenta and yeah well I think just as I shifted from like conventional doula work into more like radical birth work traditional birth work traditional midwifery it shifted my perspective on everything because everything I had been taught in in doula trainings wasn't actually very helpful anymore. I realized how much of it is like intuitive and deep, deep energetic and ceremonial work. And I saw that make such a difference in the births that I supported when I started supporting births out of the system, um, starting with, with free births that totally shifted everything and definitely shifted the way I also held placenta because now every single aspect of my job was so wrapped up in ceremony and energetics. And that's what clients started coming to me specifically for, was for that energetic work and holding that space and ceremony. So it's a, I, it was just a really, really natural 
transition of once I started having so much more reverence for women and like physiological, biological truth in birth, then placenta was just an obvious step from that. Like, of course I was going to hold her with so much more reverence. Yeah. For people who don't know that much about um, placenta medicine, encapsulation, um, can you speak a little bit to that for someone maybe who's hearing it for the first time or has heard of it, but doesn't really quite understand what it, what its purpose is? Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many options, which is why I love to guide women through all the options with placentas. I'm not even a huge advocate for everybody using a placenta medicine. It is just one option. And I feel like if you are called to it, then your body needs it. But I'm not one of those encapsulators who thinks that everybody should eat your placenta. I think it's beautiful medicine for some people. But So when I talk about consumption, there's quite a few options. A lot of women eat it like, I mean, some women cook it. It's more common for women to eat it raw and just add a little piece in a smoothie that you don't taste. Often like people eat raw liver. Um, but the other option, which is quite common is encapsulation, which is what I do. I specifically do the traditional Chinese medicine practice. Um, so that is where it comes from, where the placenta is brought and then it's steamed in really warming herbs to like, keep that warming integrity that the postpartum period needs. And then it is dehydrated and ground up and put into capsules. And then that can last, you know, many, many months, but most women take it within like the first six weeks of healing. Consumption is thought to be beneficial for a lot of different things, but especially in that like energetic constitutional warming essence in the traditional Chinese medicine that can be so healing postpartum. Another thing that it really helps with is the hormonal matrix. It carries all of the pregnancy hormones. We think that a lot of the like postpartum mood and energy issues come from that really, really steep drop off of pregnancy hormones after baby is born. So having that little bit of sustained hormonal intake really can help balance things out, help with milk production and mood and energy. Um, the women who I've talked to who have like not consume their placenta in one birth and then consumed it another, felt a lot of like deep grounding and like sustained energy that they got from consuming placenta. But the other way of consuming it, if you don't wanna eat the whole placenta or encapsulate it is tincture use, which I'm a huge fan of um, because you just need a little piece and then you make a, a fresh tincture out of it and that can last forever. Um, so that doesn't have the nutritional properties like having placenta in a raw or encapsulated also has like amazing nutrition. It's what you specifically lost in your pregnancy, right? So iron and minerals and, and of course the hormones and whatnot, but the tincture doesn't have that. It has the energetic properties and it has the hormonal properties. So it can definitely be used as more of a homeopathic medicine 
rather than uh, like foundational nutritional medicine. But what's really cool about that is that it can also be used for your children and babies. So you can have that tincture bottle. It lasts forever. You can add a drop of that tincture into like a dropper full of water. And that makes like a really diluted homeopathic dose, which if you're not familiar with homeopathic medicine, it is like the vibrational medicine. It's like the core essence. It's like rescue remedy or flower essences, right? It's the essence of your placenta. And that is gentle enough to use on babies, to use on children. It's really, really helpful um, when mom's cycle comes back. It's really helpful with, I mean, any huge milestones for you or for baby. So like teething, really helpful for teething or like child's first day back at school or any sort of separation anxiety. I've seen it be so, so, so helpful for just bringing that placenta and bonding grounding back to both mom and baby. I've even had clients who have used it on their, um, their menstruating daughters when they reach menarche to help with their hormonal matrix in that regard. So there's really endless uses for, for the tincture, which I really, really, really love, especially in like an energetic spiritual sense, like having her essence is just so, so sweet. And do you make it with vodka? And so somebody would just keep refilling the bottle. That's how it lasts forever. Yeah. I mean, I, I usually make it quite strong. What, like when I'm making it. And then I also have help, help women make their own who are more distanced, but you only need like a drop to make a whole bottle full of the actual essence. You can like as mother, you can take, I mean, some tinctures you'd take like a whole dropper full, like a milliliter, right? But with a placenta tincture, you're only taking like a couple drops at a time or adding one drop to make the placenta essence and then that will last a long time. So Got it. that's how it lasts so long, yeah. And is there a reason, I know that there's um, traditional Chinese, but there's also like the, in quotes, like raw method. Is there a reason that you don't do that method? I do do it if women specifically ask for it because I think, you know, women should have the choice to do anything, but it's not my preference just because I am more so in the space of really, really welcoming in warmth and that sustained nourishment postpartum. I don't think, yeah, I'm not a fan of cold or raw foods in general or anything that has that like cold energy because I think the sustained energy that you get from something that's really warming and cooked in the traditional Chinese method is a lot more beneficial for specifically the postpartum period. Yeah. Um, is there anything in your training with Robin or in studying her book about the placenta that you think is important for families to know? Yeah. There, I mean, there's so much I could truly <laughs> talk about placenta. Your, your top, top three or something like sure. about the placenta or just things that you found interesting when you were learning. Yeah, I think the first one I can think of is just 
how how life-changing it is to honor her no matter what way it is just taking time with her like even in pregnancy I know that it's so it's becoming more of the norm now to like talk to baby and communicate with baby and treating baby as a like you know cognizant human being in your body that you can communicate with but I feel the same about placenta I feel like just as we can talk to baby in birth and in pregnancy, we can talk to placenta that she is not only our baby's greatest ally, but our ally as well. I think the, the biggest piece of advice I have for families is to just slow down, like slowing down the process and really, really treating her with the reverence she deserves. Just like spending your pregnancy thinking about how phenomenal placenta is um like she controls your whole hormonal matrix in pregnancy and then in birth which we know is so big um she also is like baby's biggest advocate she she's the one that asks for and takes exactly what baby needs like no more no less when we get these really intense cravings in pregnancy that is placenta specifically saying hey baby needs more of this. So throughout like all of pregnancy, she is just protecting us so beautifully. And not only from um, like toxins and things that should not be passed on to baby, but I always like to remind people that she's also protecting them from um, like this energetic and spiritual toxins like stress. She is the barrier between like stress hormones for your baby as well so just spending the time and a little bit to toxins because I do know that some people um see the placenta as like a filter organ and so that if they are filtering out toxins and ingesting then they're just re-ingesting all those toxins can you speak to that I do believe she like that is one of her jobs is less so a filter and more so a like a barrier an advocate like a guardian for baby um but she doesn't hold on to those toxins she's so so intelligent it's more so of a barrier and then like toxins get sent through your filter system right and get excreted through the body they're not stored in her tissue I think there's some cases where yeah, I'd probably be hesitant to consume a placenta. Smokers, like if you're smoking throughout pregnancy um, or I mean, anything similar to smoking that would just elevate your heavy metals, like things that are absolutely not supposed to be in your body, then yeah, I might honor her in another way. Yeah, thank you. But yeah, she is so intelligent I also talk about like the calcification of placenta a lot in that um sometimes afterwards you see the like little white calcium deposits in placenta and oftentimes medical midwives will start saying like like oh that's a sign that your placenta was getting old or wasn't going to be it wasn't working as well or the blood wasn't flowing as well as just such a way of like shaming placenta and shaming mothers 
um, and saying like, oh, look, this is how your body wasn't operating optimally. But I just see those as such uh, intelligent aspect. Like it just shows that placenta, even if you were living a really non-toxic life, I've seen mothers have like calcium deposits, even if they weren't um, way post-dates or whatnot. But I, I did also see in those mothers having a lot of more stress or um, I, I, I've seen a pattern specifically with moms who had to fight for their like rights a lot throughout pregnancy as if they had a not a supportive care provider, a midwife or a doctor that they had to like really advocate for themselves and like I think that elevates stress levels as well. And I've seen that as a way, way more calcification in their placenta as well, which isn't a bad thing. It is, it's just that placenta was protecting your baby from the stress. I think it's such a, such a sign of intelligence. Is there anything you learned or want to say about talking about post-dates and this idea that your placenta will just get old and fizzle out or stop working and, you know, harm your baby? Yeah, I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> I just think it's crazy because the like placenta's job is to orient to life. She will always orient to life. So I think... I think some in some of those cases where they're like placenta is dying or placenta is no longer supporting baby, I would also see those moments as moments of intelligence because like I said, placenta will take what baby needs and like she has the ability to call out um, like the nutrients she needs from like mother's teeth and bones and brain, but she will not take so much that it would really, really harm or kill the mother. Like she's not going to take more than the mother is able to give. So I think in a case where mom's had a really, really stressful like preconception and pregnancy, instead of just working overtime for all those stress hormones on top of being really undernourished and placenta not wanting to take so much that it harms mom. And I think there is a boundary at some point where placenta will start to slow down and not overtake, not take too much. But that I, I see that as a great intelligence for both mother and baby, not as placenta shutting down or being incompetent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that she's doing the best she can so that both survive. Absolutely. So I think like the number one thing that I would always tell clients at that point is just to rest and nourish mm -hmm. as much as you possibly can. Yeah, replenish yourself and her. Exactly. Yeah. So that she has something to pull from. Yeah. Um, do you, did you learn about Lotus birth when you were with Robin? Um, is there anything you want to talk about in relation to that and placenta medicine and the ability to do both or just why people would choose lotus birth in the first place? 
yeah. and what it is. Maybe speak to what it is in case someone's like, what is Lotus birth? <laughs> totally. Yeah. I love Lotus birth as well. It's such a, well, I like to go through all of the options because something will resonate with you specifically. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that that is like the voice of your baby and your placenta and your body telling you what you need. So Lotus birth is a beautiful option. It just means not cutting the cord. You know, we have delayed cord clamping, which we can talk about after, but it's not cutting the cord at all. It's baby coming out um, and then waiting for placenta and it's leaving the cord attached until it naturally dries up and falls off. So we have to treat the placenta so that it doesn't decay. Um, so it's herbs, like fragrant herbs. It doesn't matter which ones, anything that smells nice, lavender, rose, calendula, rosemary, anything antibacterial or fragrant is really nice. But the main thing, and really the only thing you need is salt. Lots of salt, um, you know, you're curing it. So there is no decay process. There is no weird smells. It's actually, if you add the herbs, it smells quite nice. You can add oils or whatnot if you're into that. But after a, a, like a few hours after placenta has been delivered, you generally start treating it so you can hold it in a bowl or a basket beside baby, like whatever is convenient for you guys with a towel um, or paper towel and then start dressing it with the herbs, lots and lots of salt. And then it just starts drying out. Really after like a day, you'll see that the cord starts getting harder and dried out. And then it usually falls off sooner than like a stump would after you cut it. It's usually about three to five days that it will fall off. And the reason that families are choosing that is just because it is such a slow, intentional, gentle process. Um, baby has so much time to integrate with their best friend, their guardian, um, and you don't have that shock of separation. And all of the, we know that there are so many benefits to delayed cord clamping as far as getting all of the blood and all the nutrients, but there's also the belief that there's more beyond the blood and the nutrients. There's the whole energetic aspect of the placenta as well. It's so much more than the like, you know, five minutes that have been studied, um, that there's so much more going on and that baby deserves to get all of that for as long as possible. And then it's baby and placenta who choose when to initiate that separation when that falls off it's not the parent's choice so that's why that's why a lot of women choose lotus birth and then in that case you can go on to honor the placenta in other ways to bury it um return it to the earth or to plant a special tree over it but i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily consume it after lotus the birth. salt isn't to keep it preserved enough to consume it's so that you don't have the smell factor um, exactly yeah so it makes it not a gro gross process mm -hmm. uh, really there should be there should be no smell and then it, it just it dries up it turns into like cured meat it dries up and it's in the, the herbs and the salt that you can change like every day mm -hmm. but 
I have absolutely heard of people consuming it after lotus birth because it is cured. Like it should be safe. Um, so of course, if that's something you want to do, by all means, research it. I have heard of people doing it. The only reason I don't recommend it is because you never know. It's left up for quite a while. And because of, it's such a high salt content, I wouldn't be quite sure about that. I, The women I've worked with, if they've chosen a lotus birth, they haven't chosen to consume it. One thing you can do is you can take off a little piece from, from like the maternal side from the back, um, like a little one inch chunk. And you can make that into a tincture and then still have the whole placenta and cord intact and continue on at first before you salt it or when it's all done yeah before you salt it placenta is freshly out you know after it's done pulsating and whatnot you can take off a little chunk and it leaves everything else intact you can still have that tincture medicine while continuing on with uh with a lotus birth and you can do that with any any of the options you know if you wanted to just do a burial ceremony with the placenta and the cord after cutting, before you could do that, you could take a little chunk to make a tincture or a homeopathic essence in the future, even if you're not sure if you're going to use it, and then continue on with whatever honoring process you want. That's always an option as well. Do you have experience with cord burning um, instead of cord cutting? Yeah, I love cord burning. It's what I'm personally going to do. Um, and it's what most of my clients choose. Um, I think it's just so in alignment with like my biggest advice for families is just slowing down the process, the entire process, like placenta's birth, slowing that down and allowing that to happen in her like innate knowledge and intelligence. Um, you know, there's so much stress around that in the medical world when you know, unless there's a problem with bleeding, there, there doesn't need to be. So slowing that down and then just taking time with placenta, like look at placenta, take a tour, like show your older children where the amniotic sac is and doing the whole placenta, like you can do the whole placenta exam on your own, making sure all the lobes are there. Really You're easy. like homeschool bonus anatomy. Exactly. <laughs> I cannot think of a better homeschooling lesson. <laughs> I'm just marveling at this this home, like making sure all the amniotic sac is there and and looking at the cord. Like each placenta is so different and can say so much about your health and your nourishment, which is so amazing and wise. But taking time, I think, is the is the biggest thing. And, and treating her with reverence, like spending time, even if it's just five minutes of like looking at placenta while you're holding your baby postpartum and just saying thank you to her before moving on to whatever honoring choice you're going to make with her. Just taking that time makes such a huge difference. And then it's taking the time for baby. Like one of the things I'm most passionate about with placenta is really slow and compassionate severance. I think in a majority of babies, like the first trauma they have is that really fast, abrupt, uncompassionate severance with placenta. Um, 
and I just, I can't imagine like the change that we would make in the world if that was no longer a, a trauma that babies came into the world having, because I really believe that they, they hold on to it. And that's a really, really, really big energetic cutting. So I always tell clients to like, of course, wait until the cord has stopped pulsing until it's totally white and limp. Sometimes that takes five minutes. Sometimes that takes an hour, right? It's different in everyone, but beyond that, I always tell parents to wait for the moment that it feels right, that it feels, and there will be, you know, if you're not doing a lotus birth, there will be a time where you're like, okay, it's time. And it feels good in your system and all like so many births in the hospital and with medical midwives, when it was quickly cut, you can see the mothers and even sometimes the fathers just revolt and like that cringing feeling of them, like cutting the cord, like it does not feel good in their systems. You can tell it, it wasn't right yet. So there will come a time where, like I said, maybe it's 30 minutes after, maybe it's five hours after placenta has been born, but there will be a time when it lands that it feels right and true. And then why I love cord burning as opposed to cord cutting is because again, it's just so much more slow and intentional. There's also some really amazing benefits as far as traditional Chinese medicine goes. They always burned the cord without a clamp. So if you cut it, you do need to tie it off or clamp it, of course, but because the flame cauterizes it, you don't need a clamp. I've seen some people use a clamp and burn it. Of course you can, but there's way more benefits to leaving it unclamped because that flame is thought to bring all of the heat from placenta through the cord back into baby. And I've heard lots of stories from midwives of just, just doing that, just burning the cord really pinked up baby, which is so cool. Yeah, I've also and heard like said, it doesn't help with digestion potentially in the baby. Yeah. yeah, bringing that heat back into baby is gonna help with so many things like vitality and breathing and pinking up and yeah, absolutely digestion and and getting their chi really going. Yeah, in our but practice, we tend to do it like right before the newborn exam and the newborn exam is right before we leave. So between like three and four hours, um, and we've noticed too that it that families just end up kind of like processing their birth during it. Like it's a it's a moment where they slow down and they just tend to talk about the experience. And I think it's a way to like integrate what just happened. Um, a lot of times with yeah. the cord clamping and cutting, like in the hospital, because we also do it at the very very end. But it almost is like they weren't ready for it, just in terms of like, oh, this baby was just born, and I'm trying to get comfortable, and I'm like cramping, and there's just so much going on that it's just is throwing one more thing into it that we just gotta like get done and check off our list. Um, so even just like slowing that down and delaying that, which we actually have a theory in our practice, we haven't put it to use yet, but we're wondering with delayed clamp cord clamping and cutting if you delay it long enough do you need a clamp you know do you will the you know wharton's jelly have done its job and clamp everything off because there's no like theoretical blood flow 
going between placenta and baby. Um, so we have this theory, like at what point do you then not have to clamp anymore? We haven't had anyone willing to experiment on their baby yet. Yeah. <laughs> like, can we cut this cord and watch it closely to make sure that, you know, nothing's coming out and have a clamp available yeah. if needed. But um, one of our students is like, don't make me have another baby just to try this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm of the same belief like I really think after of course it's going to be different with every placenta but you can like you can see it hours later the cord does start clamping down on itself and does start drying out um yeah I would think after a certain time as long as you keep an eye on it um, yeah. just that the clamp is left over from the hospital when we baby was born and we clamped and cut right away and that it was necessary then Absolutely. The placenta was still inside and pumping, but yeah. now maybe we're holding on to something that doesn't need to be held on to anymore. So, yeah, well, it's just like, I mean, all animals who sever their own cord. Um, I mean, it's often after some time, there's no clamping involved. They just chew it off. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a really interesting fact is that primates, like chimpanzees, they are the only animal that's known to lotus birth, which is really cool. But an even more interesting fact on that is that sometimes they will eat it. it there doesn't seem to be like something that they do all the time. A lot of times chimpanzees lotus birth and leave it. And then sometimes they will cut it off and leave it. It's, it's one of the only spaces that in the animal world that seems like they are doing it intuitively and choosing what is best for them, whether it means like they're in danger and they need to get placenta, get rid of placenta faster, or maybe they bled a lot in that birth and they really, really needed it. Gosh, who's going to do the study on that? I want to, I want to see more on that. <laughs> not that incredible? Yeah. Interesting. What are, um, your most favorite like fun facts about the placenta like that's those things that you were just bringing up like any history about it or you know what animals do or what people have done historically um that you think are fascinating to you yeah I mean, my my favorite facts are like the historical and the cultural facts on it because every single traditional culture all over the world had so much tradition around placenta practices and but every single one of them had so much reverence for the placenta like that's what they all had in common they all had really really different practices of what they thought placenta was for and what they did with her afterwards but none of them threw it away <laughs> none of them disregarded it um as like an unnecessary thing every single culture like through South America um, and the indigenous people of the Americas and all through Europe and Asia, it was always held in a lot of ceremony and reverence. I lived in Indonesia and my daughter is half Indonesian. So I love to talk about the, the Balinese tradition specifically around it. And I really, really encourage anyone to just research the traditions around placenta for your ancestors sometimes it takes a little bit of digging um i have a couple of favorite books robin lynn's book and then another that focuses a lot on asian traditions and then 
another beautiful book that I can send you a link for, for the bio, or for the notes. Um, but that focuses more on European traditions, which is okay. really cool. But my daughter's tradition in Bali, the, the Indonesian people call it the Ari Ari, which means older sibling. So it's thought in that culture to be the physical body of the child's guardian angel. Um, and that this physical body of the guardian angel dies shortly after its birth, but the spirit of the placenta stays protecting the child for life. And it also helps them it guides them into the afterlife when they die as well. So placenta is held with so much reverence and the children are taught to speak to their placenta their entire lives. And then that they will be greeted by placenta and brought into the afterlife by them afterwards is just so, so special because it's not just held with reverence around birth. It's a huge cultural thing that placenta stays with them and so their practice is burying it so shortly after baby is born that they they I mean they always do delayed cord clamping as well many many hours would you say then, even in the hospitals there or no I don't know if you know no um I mean traditionally like in home birth and whatnot like that is the practice Indonesia, as most places, is also going through a period of like really westernized, medicalized hospital birth. Um, and, you know, women like Ibu Robin Lim are trying to shift those spaces back into honoring the traditional, but it's very similar there, unfortunately. But you can, but they do take home their placenta, which is a big difference from here, even in the, in the hospital births. It's really, really important for them to, to take home their placenta and to bury it on the family property. So they live on family compounds. They, the aunties and the father will go and bury it shortly after birth. And they bury it in ceremony with like prayer and intention for that child. So art is a huge piece. Um, in Bali and so they'll pick like a symbol of the art they want to call into that child's life like painting or batik or music or whatnot and they will bury it with like symbols of what they want to bring into this child's life and so it's really important that it's buried on their family property in ceremony representing their wishes for the child and oftentimes the like fallen stump will stay on the altar or stay with the baby. It's also thought to be, um, to cause problems for, or traditionally it was thought to cause problems for a child or an adult to be moved too far away from where their placenta is buried. And it was traditionally thought to cause like mental health problems and breakdowns if they're like traveling abroad like living too far away from their placenta was thought as like a form of torture which is just yeah so potent for how we treat placenta in our society biohazard exactly yeah yeah, yeah just the filtration organ that goes straight into the garbage so all cultures have 
a tradition like this, whether they're burying it or traditional Chinese medicine, it was often eaten, used as medicine. Um, but even throughout Europe, um, like throughout Europe, there was always placenta powder that was available at all of the like pharmacies and apothecaries. Like that was very, very normal until, well, until like the 18th century. So it, it isn't just sometimes in the placenta encapsulation world, they'll, they'll use traditional Chinese medicine as the only, and the animal world as the only historical places, but most other places had some practice of using it as medicine. And the like the amniotic sac and the cord have been used through so many cultures as like preserving those as like an altarpiece in more ancient Christianity. They would dry the amniotic sac. It kind of turns into like like a like a drum. Mm -hmm. If you have like a traditional skin drum, you can stretch it out and dry it, and then they would paint Mother Mary on it. I've even heard stories of more traditional Christianity, women would literally take their placenta to the altar of Mother Mary when that was, you know, more of a thing, as it still is in some places in Europe. But so many cultures would would utilize it in this way. A lot of the indigenous people of the Americas would take the cord and dry it into a circle and then weave a dream catcher through it. I've even heard stories in Europe of they would keep the stump of the placenta and then they would send it away when their sons went to war. Mm -hmm. Like just the sweetest stories of sending sending away like in their, like they would sew it in their clothing oh, to protect them. Yeah, when they went off to war. So it has always been thought of as this deep grounding protection that protected you in the womb and it would continue to do so yeah exactly that's so interesting like diving into your specific heritage and your traditions because it goes it goes so deep yeah well good I'll look forward to um posting those books in the show notes for everyone to to see and so I can read more about mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining me and for all the knowledge you had to share. And is there anything that we didn't touch on that you really wanted to mention? Hmm. I think we touched on the most important pieces for sure. It's just slowing down and really taking a minute to think about how phenomenal she is and that she always orients to life. And then making sure to honor her in whatever way feels true for you and right for your baby. I really think placenta and baby will let you know. Like I said, my plan is to burn the cord. I love the ceremony of that. Even if you're not like a spiritual family, like you said, it just, it turns into ceremony and therefore integration but I'm also going to have herbs and salt on hand because although my plan and my preference is to burn it, I don't know yeah. <laughs> if it's right in the moment that the time to separate them might never land and it might just feel right in the moment to 
keep them attached. So I think staying really open to that and communication from placenta, communication from baby throughout the birth and pregnancy and postpartum. And then honoring the severance with baby with so much slowness and compassion. One thing I always tell parents to do is to communicate with baby what is going on. I think that's one of the things that is most deeply missed is like speaking to baby like an actual human. They can feel all the energy. They know what's going on. So just communicating with them with compassion when you're cutting it or burning it, just knowing that that's a hard moment for baby. And it's not our job as parents to take the hard things away from them. It's our job to make it softer, to communicate with them and to hold them through it. So just knowing that like you can communicate to baby and say, yeah, this is a, this is a big moment. You're separating from this only, only friend in the womb that you knew from your like source of sustenance throughout your entire life. Um, and that it's okay. And we're going to take care of you now. It's like the image of, you know, us living underwater in our oxygen tanks and our masks and then, you know, being above water for the first time and someone's about to cut off your oxygen supply, you know, without some sort of context, like how scary the thought of that could be like, oh my gosh, this is the only way I ever had everything I needed and what's next. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen in your practice, like like it, it's not, it's not pain that baby feels when the cord is cut, but when it's done quickly or it's done without communicating that this is happening to baby, baby recoils and cries. And I think that that it's that energetic thing of like, nobody told me this was going to happen. This is way too fast. Um, but just imagine like, yeah, you have that oxygen tank and then somebody holding you and telling you it's okay. You'll be able to breathe after we're going to take care of you now we're going to slowly separate it you're held you're safe such a different experience right and then like of course babies deserve that amount of intention and communication as well like they feel everything you're telling them and I've just seen such a difference in my practice when um in like mom and dad and baby's reaction to separating the cord when it's just done slowly and with intention whether that's cutting or burning or not at all it's it's the intention behind it that I see make such a difference yeah oh beautiful thank you again for joining yeah. um thank and you. if anyone's trying to reach out to you will you um tell them how they can connect with you and we'll leave that in the show notes yeah absolutely my birth business name is wild birth that's W-Y-L-D birth. So my Instagram handle, which is the best way to keep in touch with me and my work um, and to work with me either locally or virtually. That's W-Y-L-D-B-I-R-T-H. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, everyone, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Born Wild podcast. 
If you enjoy our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe every week to get the latest one. And please follow us on Instagram at Born Wild Podcast, as well as Facebook. You can also write to us at info at bornwildmidwifery.com, as well as our website, bornwildmidwifery.com. And remember, stay wild! wild.